Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Art Markman, who is a professor of psychology, human dimensions of organizations, and marketing at the University of Texas at Austin, and exec director of the IC Square Institute. Uh, he has written over 150 scholarly papers on topics including reasoning, decision-making, and motivation. He's author of several books, including Smart Thinking, Smart Change, Brain Briefs, and Bring Your Brain to Work. Uh, welcome, Art. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. I want to start with uh, some of your older papers in the area of decision-making. And one of them is entitled, Taking More Now, uh, the optimality of impulsive choice hinges on environment structure, in which you say impulsivity is a stable personality trait associated with major, uh, sorry, associated with myopic choice, uh, behavior that favors immediate rewards over larger delayed rewards, and is often characterized as maladaptive inside and outside of the lab. Uh, an alternative view suggests that the consequences of trait impulsivity depend on the nature of the task environment. Uh, you want to talk a bit about that? So you have some experiments on in this context? Yeah, yeah. So, so let's just start with the big picture for a second. Yeah. You know, if you think about, about the kinds of characteristics that we see across our population, um, there, there's usually some adaptive value to that range of variation. And so when we think about impulsivity, this, this tendency to want to get the best thing I can get right now, rather than waiting for uh, something in the future, uh, we often think of impulsivity as being a negative characteristic. Yeah. We reward people for staying in school, for uh, working hard on a project rather than having fun right now. So, so we think of it as, you know, so then you could ask yourself, well, if, if it's such a negative characteristic, why is it still around? Why have we not moved people, you know, all in the direction of favoring what, what happens in the future? And so to really explore that, we, we took advantage of a, of, a, of a somewhat complicated task 
but but in which you make a series of decisions and it's a simple decision you you just you have two options yeah. and you're going to get a payoff for those options and 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 the way that the task is structured is is that on any given trial one of the options gives you a better payoff than the other mm -hmm. but on the basis of what you select now the overall state of the world changes hmm. so that when you consistently pick the the option that's better now it makes the world worse in the long run hmm. so that the overall quality of the options declines when you pick the better option and when you pick the worse option now the overall state of the world gets better so that the options get better hmm. interesting and, and what's what's interesting about setting things up like that is on the one hand you can begin to look at to what degree are people biased to pick the the shiny thing the better option now hmm. versus the thing that that creates a better world in the long run and and what you find is that that trait impulsivity is correlated with that the more impulsive you are the more that you tend to pick the better option now even though it makes the world worse hmm. And then you could ask the question, so what is the optimal strategy? And it turns out the, the answer to that question is it depends on the nature of the world that you're in. So if, if by making the state of the world better, in the long run, you actually create a better overall world, yeah. then picking the worst thing now is a good idea. But, but there's also situations in which the world may get better, but it's never going to get so much better that you're better off picking the worse option. Right. And, and so what's interesting is that the impulsive people pick the option that's better now in both of those environments, and the less impulsive people pick the option that makes the world get better in all of those environments. But in some of those environments, actually, the impulsive people are the ones who end up doing better. And so it, it, one of the things it tells us is look around the world a little bit. Hmm. You know, sometimes you know, there, there's some there's some other research by Dan Ariely suggesting that people often overwork and over earn relative to their needs. Yeah. So, so and, and 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 I think that one of the reasons that that happens is because we those of us who are less impulsive train ourselves that we have to do the thing that's right in the long term. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Every once in a while, it's actually okay to stop and smell the roses. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, so many different things there. So one is uncertainty. Uh, how, right. do you, how do you internalize uncertainty into the decision-making process? Right. And the other is sort of weighing the incremental benefits, right? So if you're already reasonably good uh, state of the world, then the incremental benefits that's going to accrue by marginally making it better is lower, right? So so, so what you're saying is that uh, when we train ourselves, correct me if I'm wrong, Art, when we train ourselves to be less impulsive, uh, in, in, in some cases, the decisions we make is, is not really rational. That's what mm -hmm. it sounds to me, right? That, that's right. That's right. Because we, we stop paying attention to uh, what, what our actual goal ought to be. And, and we substitute a proxy for that, which is um, 
a, a rule that says, you know, delay your gratification, do the thing that's right in the long term yeah. without asking yourself, is that actually the right thing to do in this environment? Yeah, and the other thing about impulsivity is that it might be a bit correlated with innovation, right? So again, mm -hmm. you can look at, you know, certain cultures where you very actively discourage impulsive behaviors uh, tend to have fairly high academic, or uh, I should call it academic accomplishments on paper, uh, but not necessarily high innovation. And I wondered if there's a correlation there too. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think one of the other things we could we could we could say about this is that it's one of the reasons why we want variability in the population is because it allows us also to create groups yeah. in which there's some heterogeneity in the underlying characteristics, and and you'd like to have a little bit of that tension. So uh, if you have an organization an academic organization is a great example of that in which everyone is into the delay of gratification, mm. then, then you may never actually try to move forward with a, a real world project that may need to get done. It's useful to have a few people out there <laughs> who actually want to just go after it right now. Right. Now, now you don't want an organization that's filled only with impulsive people because they can make a series of short term choices that may actually make it difficult for the organization to succeed in the long run. And so a lot of what you want is to create a team in which you have that creative tension in it, where you have some people dragging you towards, hey, let's get something done. But another group that's saying, you know what, we, we also need to be careful in the way that we're doing this and, and then to balance those forces. Right, right. Yeah. I want to jump into another paper. So this is the, uh, called there are at least two kinds of probability matching evidence from a secondary task. Yeah. So you say probability matching is a suboptimal behavior that often plagues human decision making in simple repeated choice tasks. Yeah. Uh, despite uh, decades of research, recent studies cannot find agreement on what choice strategies lead to probability matching. Now, probability matching is some sort of uh, heuristics that you are using from uh, history or past experiences in making a decision. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so um, let's let's think of it in the in the barest case that we tend to use in experiments, and then I can give you a suggestion for how you might see this in the world. Yeah. In 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 studies, what you tend to do is to say, okay, here here, let's say you've got two options, and and uh, and on any given trial of the experiment, you're going to choose one of those two options, and and one of those options is going to get rewarded. Or, or those options are going to be rewarded with a particular probability. So let's say I have one option that's rewarded 70% of the time, and the other is, is rewarded 30% of the time. Yeah. What, what you find in studies consistently is that people tend to engage in, in what's called probability matching, in which their probability of selecting each option mirrors the underlying probability of a reward. So you end up picking the, the option that's rewarded 70% of the time, 70% of the time, and the option that's rewarded 30% of the time, mm. you end up picking that 30% of the time. Regardless, and, of the, regardless of the size of the reward? Well, if the, that's right. Regardless of the size of the reward, you focus on that probability. And the reason that that's a suboptimal strategy is that once you determine 
what the underlying probability of reward is, you should always pick the option that's most likely to be rewarded because that will maximize the likelihood of getting rewarded, even though on some trials, you know, you're not going to get rewarded. Right. And so, and so that's the, you know, that's the paradox that, that people have tried to explain. And, you know, the, the, the idea is, uh, you know, it's interesting. We see correct behavior, this kind of maximizing behavior in some people when they do things like go to restaurants. So, so if you, if you have a restaurant that you like to go to, say a place you go to for lunch often, you may find that, that you, that, that, that you or people, you know, will actually order the same thing <laughs> every single time you go there. Hmm. And you might think to yourself, well, that's a strange behavior, but if there's a particular dish at that restaurant, you really like, well, then you are picking the optimal thing for yourself each time. You know, and, and so and so that's a maximizing kind of behavior. But but there are plenty of situations in which we we, we don't do that. We, we sometimes go to the, the best store for something, but then sometimes go to a less good store in, in kind of, you know, in, in the order of its uh, its its goodness. Hmm. And and what that does is to create uh suboptimal decisions in in some cases although you know as a as a side note i'll say one of the reasons that we tend to do that is because the world is actually dynamic hmm. and so there's a the, the the options themselves can change over time in the real world and so we don't necessarily want to get locked into doing the same thing every time because it may very well be that the that that the option we keep choosing gets worse over time or maybe other options get better if right. i always go to the same restaurant who knows a great place might open up the street or a or or a restaurant that wasn't so good might get a new chef and now be better and so a little bit of exploration actually turns out to be valuable yeah so let me let me understand this um art so the, the two options you described, one has a 70% chance of occurring, other has 30%. If I have rewards, let's say $1,000 for the 30% option, yeah. uh, my probability adjusted outcome there is 300. Uh, and I have only a $100 reward for the 70% of the time, the probability adjusted uh, outcome is 70. What you're saying is that people tend to choose the 70% option um, by probability matching. And it's a suboptimal decision because uh, probability adjusted outcomes is substantially less there compared to the 30% option. Well, actually, the way that these studies work tends to be a little bit different. Okay. So let's say that on every trial, you, have a, you, you could get a, hundred, a $100 reward. Yeah. But, but, the, but, but you'll only get that $100 reward if you pick the button that's being rewarded on that trial. And so one button gets gets the reward 70% of the time, one button gets it 30% of the time. Mm -hmm. The optimal thing to do would be to pick the 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 you know, let's say that the left hand button is the one that gets the 70 is rewarded 70% of the time. The optimal strategy is once you figure that out, always pick the left hand button and get your reward, oh. your hundred dollar reward, 70% of the time. Okay. But what actually happens is that you end up picking that button 70% of the time <laughs> okay. and the other button 30% of the time. And if you were to multiply out all of the probabilities there, you would discover that you're making less right. than 
the 70% at $100. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so, so sort of exploration is, is, is wired in. That's right. That's that. That's right. And and it turns out, and and the point of this particular paper was that there are actually two ways you can get to that strategy. One of which is a is a kind of real um, rote robotic strategy that's called win stay lose shift, hmm. where basically you pick an option, and if you get rewarded, you pick that option again, and if you don't, you pick the other option. And that doesn't really require you to pay attention to much. And it does lead to uh, probability matching behavior. But the other possibility is that you're actually tracking the underlying statistics of the world uh, and, and, then, and then picking based on those underlying statistics. And what we got was evidence that under different conditions, people will use one or the other of those strategies. And in particular, if you if you make it hard for people to, um, to to hold on to much information at any given time, right. uh, then then they then then they then they revert back to this more robotic win stay lose shift strategy, and and the reason why this matters is because if you're actually going to understand the real world. You, you, you don't just want to do things in a robotic way. You'd actually like to have a pretty clear sense of, well, this, you know, this client is, is reliable you know, this percentage of the time, and this client is only reliable this percentage of the time. You'd like to actually have a, an internal mental model of that. Hmm. And if, if, if you don't have that, then it makes it hard to do complex decision-making in the future. Yeah, th- this is also... I wondered, Art, there's some societal implications, right? So as we move forward with artificial intelligence and other technologies, uh, a very naive machine learning algorithm will always reach optimality in situations like this. It will never have, you know, the human-like <laughs> failure, yeah. so to speak, right? And so in a world where machines make most of the routine decisions, many of this consumer, uh, uh, human-driven uh, uh, judgments that result in errors uh, might not be there. So that has, that has implications for, I think, how companies think about their products and yeah. uh, you know, other types of things in the future, I think. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely does. Although what, what I find really fascinating is, you know, if we look back over the last 30 or 40 years of, of research in, in AI, and, and you know, one of the things that we find in general is that, that models... Uh, mathematical models of of complex decision tasks generally outperform humans. Yeah. But a combination of a human expert with a model generally outperforms the model alone. Hmm. And and one of the reasons for that is because the underlying statistics really are very sensitive to certain subtleties, but they often miss conditions under which the the the, the previous data don't really apply. Yeah. So, for so, for example, if you think about the the the, the COVID nineteen pandemic, um, you know the 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 models really would have a, have had a hard time predicting the the way that our stock markets went off a cliff <laughs> in right. March, yeah, because because the the previous data didn't have anything in it that that would have predicted that. But anyone who was able to pay attention to the uh, the implications that the pandemic was having 
could could actually make that prediction. And so there's a case where you want to say, hey, let's let's not go with just the model data. Let's actually um, step in and intervene in that case. Yeah, I want to touch on that uh, in one of your recent papers. But before we get into it, I want to uh, talk about one other one, uh, structural comparison and consumer choice. Uh, but you say psychological research has demonstrated important parallels between the structural alignment process involved in judgments of similarity and the processes that are involved in analogical reasoning. Uh, so what's, what's structural alignment in this yeah. context? Yeah, this was actually kind of a fun project for me because it, it, it was one of the first times that I was able to bring together two different aspects of the work that, that, I, that I did. So early in my research career, I spent a lot of time trying to understand how people make comparisons. And, and one of the things that emerged from that work is this, is this idea that the knowledge that we have isn't just some list of, of features of things. Mm. You know, so we don't, we, you know, if we, if we look at a bird, for example, we don't just say, well, it sings and it's got feathers and it's got legs. What we do is actually structure that so that what we, we so that our knowledge actually tells us that, you know, we, that, that we have legs and those legs are meant for uh, locomotion, for walking, uh, that, that, are, that the wings are, are meant for flying, that the, that the head has sensory organs on it. And so there's all of these interconnections. Yeah. And the reason that that's valuable is that it's it's what enables us to make some very subtle and complex comparisons so that if I were to compare uh, a, uh, let's say, an airplane to a car, even though airplanes and cars both have wheels, I tend to focus on uh, on, you know, matching up the, the, the wings of the airplane to the to the wheels of the car because they're the thing that really facilitates the way that this that this thing is supposed to move. Yeah. And and so that structure is what enables us to do that. And what what's fascinating about that process is that it tends to lead us both to when we make a comparison what things have in common as well as the differences that relate to what they have in common. Hmm. And, 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 and those, those differences are called alignable differences. So, for example, you might say a plane has wings and a car has wheels. Right. Now, now, that's an alignable difference because what I've done is to decide that these things need to be placed in correspondence because of their function, but they differ. And what's interesting is that we often discount or, or fail to pay attention to elements of one of the options that don't have a particular correspondence in the other. So, you know, planes have flight attendants and cars don't, <laughs> you know, and, and you just tend not to, you just tend not to think of that, you know, right. it becomes hard. And, 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 and so then you could say, well, so, so this is, this is something that emerges out of research on, on how people make judgments that things are similar, that how they make these comparisons. And that was, that was a, a that was actually stuff that I did back when I was a graduate student with my graduate advisor Dedry Gentner. But one of the things that we began to think about is, well, what, why does this matter? And one of the reasons it matters is because when you make decisions among uh, sets of things, you often make those decisions on the basis of comparisons of the options. 
Right. And and what we were able to demonstrate over a series of different studies that I did, um, some with 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 uh, uh, Doug Medine, who was another one of my graduate advisors, and some with Shi Zhang, who was a graduate student of mine, who's now a professor at UCLA. Um, we were able to show that that in most situations, when you make comparisons of of options, you focus on these alignable differences, mm. these elements where there's a corresponding aspect for each of the options, and and you discount unique properties of one of the options that the other one doesn't have. And, and you don't even realize you're doing this. You don't notice you're doing that. And as a result, a particularly important feature of something mm -hmm. that, you, that, that, is, that doesn't have a correspondence with the other options will not get as much weight as it ought to get when you're making choices. Right. Yeah. So, so this is one of the reasons, Art. I think you know we continue to, I shouldn't say fail, but uh, not reach anywhere in AI to get anywhere close to uh, human level of thinking. Um, you know, we have a very messy wiring <laughs> diagram mm -hmm. in the brain, and it's doing a lot of different things we don't quite understand. It's not just a you know deep neural network uh, as as we have portrayed in technology. But I was also thinking that, so, you know, the, the way that the brain functions uh, in this context, really, as you say, looking for similarities or looking for lack of similarities and then make a judgment, uh, it's not really storing features, but it is storing history. And so, yeah. so would you say, um, you know, how you make a judgment is a function of culture, right? So you have to have similar artifacts or non-similar artifacts uh, from history to, to reach that judgment. And you may have different artifacts in different cultures, right? So yeah. it will be really difficult to, to, you know, to, to sort of mechanistically draw up the decision process. And I think that is why we continue to fail in that area. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. But you know, what's, what's interesting to me too, is if you look at the introduction of new products, yeah. um, every once in a while you say, wow, this product was really ahead of its time. And, and you could ask yourself, what in the world does that mean that a product is ahead of its time? And if it's such a great product, shouldn't, shouldn't everyone want to use it? But, but part of what it means is that, that the knowledge of most of the consumers in that culture at that time doesn't have enough things in it that are similar right. to the product you're introducing that they can really internalize quickly what its benefits are. Mm. And, and so often what you find is that when a product hits its time, it's because people are aware enough or, or understand enough about what that product uh, could, could bring to them because of, of other bridging technologies that now they're ready to accept it. And so, and so you, you, you have to, you know, if you, if you create a product that is ahead of its time, one of the things you have to ask yourself is in order to get this accepted by people, what is the work that I need to do to prepare them mm. to understand why this is something that they're going to find attractive? Yeah, so that goes into uh, the marketing communication that, that you talk about here. Uh, yeah, it's quite interesting. If I remember correctly, Art, you know, when Lexus and Infinity was about to come out, uh, I don't know when this was, maybe early 1990s or something like that, uh, they had totally different marketing approaches to it. 
um you know infinity if i remember correctly you know showed never showed the car it showed you know sort of um basically uh, artifacts or images that shows high levels of innovation um whereas lexus war was that i believe was more mechanistic in terms of showing the features and, and so on mm-hmm. and so so when you're introducing a new product i think this is two totally different approaches to it right and and, and maybe there is a mathematical basis why one would succeed compared to the other yeah you know it's it's an interesting question too i mean some of it also has to do with as a marketer you have a certain amount of flexibility in in trying to determine what the basis of comparison is uh and 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 d- d- depending on how you set up that basis of comparison you can make it easier or harder for people to accept the the the, the product and so one of the dangers for example i mean lexus and infinity had a particular problem which is that they were these luxury brands that were extensions of existing brands that people didn't generally think of as being particularly luxurious right and and but at the same time they were being put in they were being introduced at a price point that came in below some of the brands that were that were clearly seen as luxury brands mm-hmm. so they they were intended to get people to take a step up from Toyota and Nissan right. but not necessarily to be at least initially a successful competitor to Mercedes-Benz right and so the the the, the balancing act that they had to go through was how do you make sure that people don't view these new brands as just another version of a Toyota or Nissan mm. but at the same time not create the sense that if you're going to step up to a Lexus or Infinity maybe what you really should be doing is stepping all the way up to a Mercedes <laughs> right. and yeah. and 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 so that was you know i think over the years they have they have of course changed the quality of those of those brands in ways that they're they are more significant competitors to to Mercedes and BMW and some of those cars mm-hmm. but 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 they had this very interesting balancing act that they had to go through and i think that what you saw in 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 your as you were talking about those strategies were different ways of trying to avoid the 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 direct comparison back to the 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 parent companies yeah. while also not necessarily inviting a strong comparison to the known luxury brands mm-hmm. yeah that that's really a tough uh uh tough act um yeah. so so let me jump into one of your recent papers uh, uh i don't know if it is published or not uh, combining the strengths of naturalistic and laboratory decision making research uh, to create integrative uh theories of choice um, yeah. i guess it's published right so yeah that one has did did come out yeah okay okay so you said naturalistic decision making research contrasts with traditional lab research along a number of dimensions it's typically more observational more focused on expert performance and more attentive to the context in which decisions are made than lab studies so you're basically yeah. saying you know there are the two two types of uh, ways we could think about analyzing decision making processes one is more mechanistic in the lab lot of data lot of people um and really looking at how humans behave and the other is outside the lab 
where you're actually looking at real life situations and real experts, uh, but only few of them uh, making uh, making decisions. And so uh, I think you're arguing these are complementary things that you might be able to integrate together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the that was the idea. So I, I was invited to to kind of create a. Uh, a, a paper that 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 other people in the research fields could react to, and and I think you know the the idea is you know uh, for example if we think about a few of the early studies in this in in our podcast that we talked about those were very much laboratory kinds of studies right so you had a small number you know people are choosing two options that are re- one of which is rewarded seventy percent of the time you know that's not something we do most of the time. In, in our real lives. But what, what those kinds of studies enable us to do is to distill uh, a, a particular question down to an essence and then test a whole bunch of people on it uh, in order to be able to assess what's going on. So there's a lot of experimental power in that. There's a lot of ability to really um, say that we understand why people did what they did. So, so in, in scientific language, we would say that that's all stuff that has high internal validity, yeah. but it, it has low what's called external validity, meaning it's really hard to find situations in which people do something exactly like that out in the world. And, and naturalistic decision-making research tends to go in the opposite direction. So it tends to look at expert performance in, in, situations that are either analyses of decisions that people actually made, or they create conditions that look very much like the expert decisions that are made, and they walk experts through those scenarios and get them to talk about some of the things that they that drove their decision and to really dig into the details of what they did. The the, the thing about naturalistic decision-making research is it has very high external validity. It's clear when these things happen, but, but it's a little bit harder to know exactly why they happened because you don't really have the opportunity to manipulate things in, in the way that you do in, in, in more uh, rigorously designed laboratory studies. And so there's a trade-off between yeah. the two of those. And, and my feeling is that... Uh, just like you want to have variability in personality characteristics, you, you want to have variability in the way that you approach your research. You, you, you'd like to make sure that, that you, you do a certain number of studies for which you can say very clearly, this is what caused this result. But at the same time, you also don't want to lose sight of what people do out in the world. Uh, because, because, you know, a lot of times, and I'm sure you've found this with all of the work you do with, with your podcast, that, that every once in a while you talk to a scientist who is studying something and for the life, for, 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 you know, if your life <laughs> depended on it, you'd have a hard time figuring out when this would happen in the real world. Mm. And, and I think that, that, that we need that balance as researchers. We need, to, we need to keep our eye on the fact that we're ultimately trying to explain things that happen in the world. And so we need to go back and forth between those lenses in order to do it effectively. Yeah. So, you know, when I was reading the paper, Art, I was thinking about, um, you know, I come from sort of the corporate world. So I I have seen 50 or so large companies from both inside and outside. uh, And the the why part of what you mentioned uh, of a decision makers process, right? How did they get to that decision? Uh, you know, it's often uh, cited uh, as an example or as a as a reason 
that good decision makers uh, have very high compensation. And, and people say, yeah, that is proof enough that they make good decisions. Uh, now, my experience has been that if you ask a, a quote-unquote good decision maker to sort of describe the process, he or she cannot uh, or would not. Uh, and, you know, there's a little bit of a principal agent problem there because uh, decision makers' incentive is to convince the, the capital provider that he or she is a good decision maker regardless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and hence, uh, describing it in, you know, in detailed terms uh, is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, but generally, my bias is to say when there is a lot of uncertainty, humans are not very good decision makers. Even naive machine learning algorithms could overperform uh, human decision makers. I just let, let you react to that. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting, an interesting observation. And, and I, I think what I would say is the 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 the. the the quantitative models are particularly good in situations of uncertainty where the decision is very constrained. Hmm. So, so for example, um, if I had to do stock picking, I would really much rather have a model do that for me than a human. Yes. Uh, Because, because the, there's, there's a lot of quantitative variation and, and frankly, you know, it's, it's that, that subtlety is something that, people would have difficulty with. And we would also have difficulty with, you know, paying overweighting recent history when we're really interested in a long-term trend. But the thing about stock picking is it's a pretty constrained choice, meaning there's a there's a certain number of options and we have a certain amount of history about each of those options. Yeah. So let, let me contrast that with, um, I've spent the last six months heading the academic working group for planning for the fall semester for the University <laughs> of Texas. That would have an experience. And it was, it was an incredible, it was a, it was an, a, an incredible experience. Yeah. It was, it, but, but it's tremendous amounts of uncertainty. Yeah. But, but also we had to construct the options along the way. Hmm. You know, we had to, we had to, we had to determine what are, what might best practices look like in a novel environment, uh, you know, and, and to what degree, do uh, do we have to hold certain classes uh, remotely using online platforms versus in person in in highly constrained ways that try to keep people safe? And so there there were so many dimensions to this decision, and they had to be addressed um, in you know by by a range of experts in ways that that. There, there just wouldn't have been a good set of, of underlying models because, because what we were doing was something that was unprecedented. So we couldn't just project from uh, a long-term data set. And so, and so to me, you know, those are both conditions of great uncertainty, but, but one of them is, I think, much better suited to mathematical models, and the other is much better suited to human interaction. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder, Art, if you would make a distinction between planning and decision. So, you know, if, if you think about decisions, I'm saying, you know, uh, you're given a set of options and you're asked to pick one. Uh, and we see that problem in both, end, both ends of the spectrum. You know, you think about high-frequency trading, 
we can demonstrably show um, uh, machines are a lot, lot better than humans. You know, humans yeah. uh, destroy alpha by sitting in front of a computer and trading, whether it's high yeah. frequency or not. And we see that on the other end of the spectrum, too. Think about pharmaceutical R&D process, where you are making decisions on products that take 15 years from idea to market. Uh, even there, um, we don't really see good evidence that humans are good decision makers. And there is a, right. there's a horizon problem there, too, Art, which is if I'm a senior level in a pharmaceutical company, you know, my horizon I'm trying to maximize is really you know, five, six, ten years. And, you know, uh, my decisions are not going to be held against me because the portfolio is going to materialize 15, 20 years down the road. So there is yeah, a yeah. horizon problem there, too. Yes, um, yes. But, but generally speaking, my observation has been that when there is uncertainty, when there is a, a, diff, a, a group of uncertainties that interact with each other, uh, humans tend to fail in, in that environment. Yeah, I think I think when so another way to say this is um, when there is a clear consideration set. Yeah, meaning there there is a set of options, uh, and and where there is significant uncertainty, um, and there's sufficient data relating to each of the options, then models are are often superior in part because many of the motivational factors that humans have mm. that drive our day-to-day -day actions don't really benefit the decision process. Right. And and also in in some number of those decision tasks you don't have to adapt the decision on the fly. Meaning, you know, if I if I make a particular choice to purchase a particular stock then, you know, at time two, when I make my next trading decision, yeah. the state of the world is, is, is just now I have this portfolio and there's this data in the world. And so I'm not necessarily recovering from that past decision. I'm just making the next decision given the state of the world. Right. And models, I think, do very well in those situations. And where I think people are good is if we have to construct the set of options, yeah. but it's not just the decision process. It's also that there are some complex decision processes where the decision itself is, we're going to start off in this direction and adapt on the fly. And so there are many decision settings in which the decision and planning process are so deeply interleaved mm. that, that what you need to do is to have people think of it as essentially a continuous iterative planning process with periodic decisions being made. And that's a place where, where humans can do quite well. Right, right. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's exactly right. So, so the, the argument in the paper art is that uh, there are complementarity between, you know, taking a real business or real decision makers making real decisions and making that as a lab, so to speak, a real lab. Yeah. Uh, compared to, you know, sort of constructed lab uh, data uh, and the complementary data. So if we can combine that in some systematic way, we might get better insights, right? That's right. And, and, and it's also, I think, a plea. Um, many, of the, many of the researchers who do naturalistic decision-making research tend not to do laboratory research and vice versa. And so part of this is, a, is an invitation or a plea for those individuals to collaborate with each other and to and and to expand the, the their own research 
by taking into account these other perspectives because I think it would it would broaden and benefit both communities to do that. Yeah, yeah. I want to jump into another paper. Um, yeah, this, this is entitled Strategies for Economic Development Outside the Urban Corridors. Uh, this is increasingly more relevant uh, in the context of COVID. Uh, you say small communities and isolated cities have lagged behind larger urban areas in economic development and also in research uh, that illuminates how economic development can be promoted. Uh, and this ca- gap would not be a problem if the principles of prosperity uh, were the same inside and outside of urban corridors, um, which is not, um, uh, you can see in the data. Uh, and so you're, you're looking at a few experiments, examples, right? Um, mm-hmm. Northwest Arkansas as, as an example for for instance, in this context. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is, you know, it's funny. I mean, so, so here we've talked about all these laboratory studies, but I, I do believe in, in, in looking inside and outside the lab. And a year and a half ago, uh, I was lucky enough to become the executive director of the IC Squared Institute, which is a, a think tank at the University of Texas that has always focused on economic development. For a long time, it was focused on on technology and technology commercialization and yes. played a role in helping Austin, Texas to go from being a sleepy college town in the 1970s to being uh, a, a major player in, in technology as, as it is today. Yeah. But but uh, as director, one of the things that we uh, that, that I did was to was to work with our faculty and, and the researchers at the Institute to think about new problems that really desperately need to be solved. And, and, and thinking about what's going on outside of these urban areas just seems to be of incredible importance in, in the United States and around the world. And, and there's just not a lot of research on that, as, as you were pointing out in your introduction to this. So, so what we really wanted to do is to ask the question, what strategies need to be used to help these, these regions develop and, and what could be done to help that? And, and one of, the, one of the areas that we studied uh, with, with the help of, of the folks from the Walton Family Foundation was, was to look at some of the things that are going on in, in, the, in the Northwest Arkansas region, which centers on, on towns like Bentonville and Fayetteville. Hmm. And, and what's interesting there is um, they, communities when left to themselves, and we see this in, in many of the communities in Texas, for example, when, they're le- when, when left to themselves, they tend to focus on how do I develop the economy inside of the borders of my community? Mm-hmm. And so how could I attract a factory or how could I help this small business to grow in my community? And that's a small and, area and small population. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and unfortunately, it's very difficult to create sustained economic growth inside of a single small town. What, what's easier to do is to create that kind of growth by, by having communities collaborate with each other. Mm. But, but it's, it's hard to get the political will to make that happen. And, and what Northwest Arkansas did that was actually quite interesting was that Sam Walton, the, the head of Walmart, yeah. uh, got a group together to create what, what is now called the Northwest Arkansas Council, mm. which is a a kind of informal governing body that promotes regional development. And so over the years, they did infrastructure projects to benefit the region, building up the 
a, a network of roads between the communities that would make it easier for people to get from one place to another, building even parks and trails that interconnect the communities, mm. and also to promote having each of the communities within the region think of how they might contribute in a way that doesn't compete directly with the other communities. So for example, some of those communities, Fayetteville, for example, which is the home of the University of Arkansas, many of the retail and, and, uh, and service businesses cater to younger people and particularly college age folks. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, so, uh, and so if you are a college age type person in any of the communities in Northwest Arkansas, Fayetteville's your destination. Whereas Bentonville, if you go to downtown Bentonville, it's, it's organized around a town square that caters to young families. And so, you know, there's a great record store, for example, that, that you know, if you're, if you, you know, if you've got kids and you, and you want to buy a cool piece of music, you know, it's not a huge purchase, but it's the kind of thing that you might enjoy that, um, that's a that you know they have amenities like that in Bentonville, and so the idea is that the various communities built up their retail and service environments to cater to particular demographic groups, hmm. rather than trying to compete for everybody, which which would have meant that no one no one of those communities would have succeeded particularly well, and they've done the same sort of thing with. Uh, with with larger business, but that's kind of a nice example of of how they created a a compatible set of of businesses. Yeah, so so the the characteristics here uh, are so you have to have it sounds to me some kind of a governance system, um, you know that sort of pulls everything together. You have to have an infrastructure that ties everything together, and then the the city planning aspects of this has to re it has to be different right it has to allow yeah. specialization yes uh, regional specialization so it's almost like a design problem yeah uh, if done properly could have great uh, value yeah I, I think that's absolutely right and and one of the things that's different about smaller communities relative to big cities is that I, I often joke when talking with people about this, that in a big city or, you know, a town the size of Austin, Texas, if you want to get something done, you just have to create what you could call the coalition of the willing. Mm -hmm. So, so you just find somebody who's interested in doing it and you work with them. But, but if you're in a small town or in a small region, yeah. you have to find the coalition of whoever's there right. because, because you don't have the luxury of, of being able to find someone else who might have a set of skills if one person turns you down, which means you really have to rely on, on your people skills, on your ability to negotiate effectively and to really understand the other person's needs and to create uh, more of a relationship with people who you might be able to ignore if both of you were residents of a big city. And so it, it really does put a lot of these these soft skills to the forefront uh, in a way that 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 you can avoid sometimes if you're in a bigger city. Yeah, so so there is also sort of a critical size problem here, right? So you need to get to that uh, sort of a minimum minimum efficient scale, so to speak. That's right. Uh, 
And when you reach there, you get talent influx, you get other things that need to come into the into that area for that to work uh, from a sustainable perspective. You have another case in here, Art, which I find fascinating, which is uh, Northern Sweden. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a place we don't want to go. <laughs> no, yeah. If it's uh, minus two degrees uh, centigrade average temperature or something like that. Uh, so how did how did uh, that happen? Yeah, that's a fascinating place. They, they've had a, a tremendous amount of, of success at economic development. But part of the reason for that is is because they've taken advantage of some of the factors that uh, that that you might think of as as being drawbacks so as as you point out the the average daily temperature for the year is is you know minus two degrees centigrade that's that's cold yeah uh but but there are certain industries for which cold is a benefit Mm. and so they've actually managed to become one of the largest locations in europe for server farms yeah uh because because you know now you don't have to locate it somewhere and do a lot of air conditioning. You just need to let the cold, you know, let the hot air out, the, the, you know, and 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 things cool off. So, so it's a, uh, it you know they, they they've taken advantage of some of that. But but one of the other things that they've done quite well, and this is a what I like about this is, is it's a nice contrast to to Northwest Arkansas. They don't have an overall governing council. Yeah. What they do have is is several individuals who have decided that regional collaboration is critical. Mm. And so one of the other success stories there is that is that that region has become home to, to Northvolt batteries, which is one of the largest manufacturers of, uh, of rechargeable batteries. And, and what they did, the, the Northvolt had actually approached Lulio, which is one of the towns in that region. And, uh, and, and Lulio said, you know, we, don't locate your factory here. And yeah. so they actually they actually sent the, the factory to a neighboring community, hmm. but then set up a, a, a collaboration among communities so that other communities would provide housing and logistics and other support for the factory and, and really turned it into a, a regional win. And, and that really required a vision because because if you were approached as an economic development person and somebody said yeah we want to put this large factory in your town mm. your first reaction generally isn't no why don't you go to one of our neighboring communities <laughs> yeah but if you really think about what the benefit of of that factory is for the region yeah. you might actually recognize that your particular town is actually better suited to play a slightly different role once that business locates to the region, at which point you, you may actually create a much more sustainable development. But it requires people with vision and it requires people who are really willing to work together and to trust each other that, that if you, you know, recommend another community get this factory, that they're going to work back with you to make sure that you get some, uh, some, some good development as well. Yeah, so you know th- this is so interesting. Um, so, so uh, you know, uh, we have uh, I think something like sixty million people, about twenty percent of our population, in in sort of rural areas. Is that right? Mm-hmm. In the that's, US, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, in conclusion, Art, you know, uh, based on your research, are there certain parameters that you believe will make this 
more successful. What I mean by parameters, you know, a uh, number of uh, different types of towns, their populations, their distance from each other. Um, are there parameters that that are you know uh, that make them more successful? And and if so, um, have you done any research around you know how many of that sixty million people could benefit from? Uh, this type of an arrangement. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that that actually we live at a very interesting time right now because I, I believe that 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 the task that was facing these smaller communities was much more difficult three years ago than it might be right now, because uh, you know, I one of the ways to see this is that that over the last thirty years, one of the trends in business has been towards uh, optimizing supply chains optimizing logistics, getting everything as cheaply as possible and doing a lot of just-in-time manufacturing. Mm. And, and what that does is to drive down costs, which is a benefit to the consumer, but it does it at the cost of resilience. Yeah. So a shock to the supply chain can create shortages and, and, and other significant problems. So, so I, I, there's been w- the well-publicized discussions about the the, the run on toilet paper in March. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the observation that that really emerged from the fact that there are two different supply chains mm. for toilet paper. Right. Uh, one, one that's a consumer-based uh, supply chain and one that's a, a commercial-based. And that, and that when everyone started working from home, it taxed the consumer-based supply chain and, 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 uh, and the commercial supply chain wasn't needed. Right. So, so, yeah. so it was a resilience problem. Mm. And, and I think that, that what that tells us is that there's going to be more appetite over the next decade for creating more redundancy in the supply chain, yeah. uh, having a little bit more uh, local control over manufacturing and logistics. And that's precisely the sort of thing that a lot of small communities are going to be able to participate in. Hmm. And, and so I think actually there's a real opportunity right now. In order for that to work, though, and this gets back to your, to your question about parameters, there are several problems that need to be solved. And hmm. one of those problems is a workforce development problem, which means you know, the, the regions that have access to a four-year college or a community college that can help to train and retrain workers is going to be crucial and to make that a regional hub of education. Yeah. And, and so that's going to be one issue. Another issue that's going to be incredibly important is that a, another difference between Sweden and the United States is that in Sweden, healthcare and broadband access both lead the market. Hmm. The, the, the government provides uh, insurance on healthcare and, uh, and, and promotes the development of broadband access, even in rural regions. Right. Whereas in the United States, both healthcare and broadband t- tend to lag the market. Mm. So until there's a market for a hospital, you don't get a hospital. Right. Until there's a, uh, a need for high-speed broadband, you don't get it in the region. And that, that makes it more difficult for our smaller communities to develop. And I think one of the other things that's going to have to happen is that communities are going to have to work with local governments and other regional authorities to create more of a pull 
for both broadband access and medical care, mm. because it's just hard to get a workforce to move to a region if the nearest hospital is 100 miles away. So, so those, are, those are some issues that are going to have to be uh, addressed because, because the act, access to good health care is really important for people as a, as, a, as a place to live. And then I think the third thing, the third parameter that's really important is a willingness for the region to sit down and figure out how they could collaborate yeah. on an industry. So, so are they going to be the manufacturing center, the logistics center, the warehousing center, the, you know, are they going to be providing an interface among firms? You know, those are, those are the kinds of things where I think you can get a certain amount of specialization in, in, uh, in a particular community that requires collaboration. And what's fascinating to me is that that collaboration is extraordinarily difficult to come by. So for example, we've done some studies up in, in Keene, New Hampshire. Mm. And Keene is an interesting place. They've got a lot of precision manufacturing firms uh, that have been there for 50 years. They are also home to one of the largest supermarket logistics companies, a, a company that just that, that, that sends groceries to grocery stores all around the country. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating is those two entities are largely independent within the community, meaning that they're aware of each other, but they don't work on anything together. Mm. And yet, if, 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 you, if you think of it with another lens, you could imagine a company that has strength in national logistics actually trying to collaborate with co companies that have manufacturing expertise to say, well, what if we had a wing that actually assisted these precision manufacturing companies in the distribution of their goods around the country? That right. might actually make the town even more attractive for additional manufacturing. And so I think that there are ways of looking at those hidden resources, sort of like Sweden looked at its cold temperatures um, and using those as a as a way of jumpstarting additional economic development. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it sounds to me odd that yeah, what you're saying is that there, there has to be certain initial conditions for this to work. So yes. education, workforce development, um, there has to be, you know, and similarly, uh, healthcare and information infrastructure, the Sweden has done extremely well. Yeah. And so what. The, what that tells me is that uh, do you do you think this you know this needs some sort of a seeding program uh, from you know from a national level so you can you can go out and analyze the sixty million people and you can come up with i would imagine you know uh, i don't know uh, fifty uh, communities that sort of fit the geographical aspects of it but they cannot they cannot move into this idea without some seed capital. Mm, yeah. And, you know, rather than sending everybody stimulus checks, which might be needed, uh, this might be a much, much uh, sustainable stimulus, you know, to the organization, uh, to, to the community. Right. Yeah. And I also see, you know, from you said, um, it's not like this will be an emergent phenomena, it sounds to me. So if you set the initial conditions, you know, you kind of step back and say things will work out. Not necessarily, because you sort of need a strategic plan. That says, that, you know, this is how specializations could uh, could evolve and how they could collaborate, and how you know how the whole system could work, and so that goes back to the governance, the requirement for you know some kind of a governance that does that strategic plan for them. 
That that's that's correct. And 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 just to just to amplify two things that you're saying there. I mean, I think one is you know the the development of any kind of economic ecosystem is going to require collaborations between business and government and uh, and and universities. Uh, I think those are those are crucial legs to the to the stool. Uh, you know, and 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 one of the problems that smaller communities have is that is that they often don't have a lot of expertise around strategic planning. Yeah. Uh, and and so you know, in fact, one of the things that that the IC Squared Institute does is to try to provide training for that. We've actually got a program that we're firing up in the fall of uh, the, here in the fall of 2020, where uh, that's called Regional Accelerate. That is is a strategic planning course uh, for communities and regions to think in this way precisely because uh, uh, you know a lot of times in small towns the person who's mayor is just the person whose turn it was to be mayor right now it's not someone who envisioned being a career politician and so you know they they, they may be a, a great local business person or or, or you know a, a, a young professional but they're not necessarily somebody steeped in 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 governance and yeah. so uh, we we want to help to to, to, to provide some additional education and resources to help those communities to, to do that better. Right, right. Yeah, excellent. Uh, this has been great. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me and uh, good luck with this, this very important work that you're doing from IC Square. Well, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking with you. And it's always fun to, to talk about that interplay between the, the basic research that gets done and the way that it can get applied out in the world. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.